You are listening to the Living Truth Podcast with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. Please stay tuned to Living Truth as we engage in an in-depth journey of discovery through the discussion of God's Word for the purpose of devotion and godly living. We pray that you would be blessed through today's conversation and that God would sanctify your heart in truth, for His Word is truth. Welcome to Living Truth Radio Broadcast. Uh, We are excited that you are joining us uh, via the airwaves, whether you are in your car or at home, uh, listening on the internet. Uh, We are two friends who like to get together and talk theology. And we uh, sort of imagine that you're eavesdropping in our conversation, and we love to dig into the Word of God and to really see what the Lord may speak to us through His Word. And uh, we have been going through a book of the Bible, and we have been going through the wonderful book of Ruth for the last several months, actually. And we are nearing, we're actually at the end of the book. And so what we're going to do today is sort of pick up uh, a few last few uh, discussion moments on the genealogy in the book of Ruth. And then we're going to have uh, a couple of uh, discussions this week and next week, sort of on the theology of the book, just sort of just at the end of the day, what is it that we're learning about God, just so we can leave this book with understanding the, the nature of God, the actions of God, and how is it that he was um, significant in Ruth's life, but also in our lives today. And so, uh, if you have not joined us before, uh, the book of Ruth is a story of, really, of, of faithfulness. It's a story of commitment. It's a story of... of um, of, of Whit Ruth and her mother-in-law Naomi, who endured some very difficult situ- situations, and how God, in His grace, uh, in His sovereignty, uh, sort of brought them out of that. And uh, it's a beautiful book, and it ends with a a genealogy which seems to be tacked on, but it ends with this with this genealogy that leads to King David. And David is, in the Old Testament, is probably the most, he's the most important king in the Old Testament. He is sort of the poster child of what they expect or wanted the Messiah to be like. Uh, He is God's choice. And so to see the heritage of David is significant and to see the characters uh, and the characteristics of of his uh, ancestry uh, in and through the characters in Ruth is significant. So... um, it's kind of uh, it's kind of odd to pick up with the genealogy, but it's not always uh, everybody's uh, favorite thing to talk about. But maybe uh, we'll uh, be able to show you some wonderful things today. You, you know, John, I'm actually very excited about the genealogy and genealogies in general. Yeah, because frankly, um, there there as we said last week, are not a lot of them in Scripture. No. And um, all of the genealogies together actually say something, but each of the genealogies individually also say something. And the genealogies are, are very ripe and pregnant with purpose. You, you know, what's interesting is, is we, when we, we think about genealogies and things like that in the Bible, it makes you feel like you're part of something. You know, when you go and you kind of look up where you came from and what your your heritage is, you kind of feel like a part of something bigger than yourself. And now in Scripture, there's very limited amounts of genealogies. They're at key points and key places. This is one of them. 
Um, it's significant that there's two genealogies in the Gospels, one in Matthew, one in Luke, that speak of Jesus's history and of Jesus's heritage of, of really who are the people that led up to him as, as a human being and to see what kind of people God included in his genealogy that sort of opens the door and I think there's a parallel between Jesus' genealogy and Ruth's genealogy in the kind of people that are there and the kind of people that are in David's you know, where did this David come from? Where did this, where did this Jesus come from? And it's, it is a testimony to, to God's grace that he picks all kinds of people from all kinds of background with all kinds of history and all kinds of issues to still be included in his family. Here's a significant thing for me. Um, hands down, the book of Ruth, I trust that our audience shares this opinion, has been astounding. I mean, it's been a marvelous surprise from the first chapter through the fourth chapter. Right. But for the narrator, for the um, literary author, the main point of all of those chapters have sought to use this genealogy as the crescendo, as the main point. So if, in fact, we might say that the book has been spectacular, we are to keep an anticipation because the genealogy being the main point of the book has to be even more spectacular, both from the Holy Spirit's perspective, from the literary author's perspective, human that is, and it should be from our perspective. So it really not is not the the anticlimactic aspect of the book, but it's the highlight of and, the book. And that's a good point because you have to wonder, you can read the book of Ruth and come to the end and see, okay, Ruth is given a child, or Naomi actually gets to adopt this child. You know, you know she's her her bitterness has been turned to to, to fullness and joy. End of story. And you could stop there, and then just skip over the genealogy as if to say, "Oh, this is just sort of appendage that does not necessary." But there's a reason why God includes it here at this point, and we have to ask the question: Well, now why is this here, and how does this contribute to everything I just read? And studied. So let's let's uh, pick it up because uh, our hour will go by really fast if we well, don't. Indeed. <laughs> yes. So I'm just going to start with in, in chapter four. Um, I'm I'm just want to back up just a few verses, just get a running start. Uh, in verse thirteen, it says, "So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son." Then the woman of the uh, said to Naomi, "Blessed is the Lord, who has not left you without a redeemer today, and may His name become famous in Israel. May He also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him." Now we would normally say, "End of story, great story, wrap it up." You know, close the curtain. But then it says. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed, and he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Great. Now, it still continues, though. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez being character back in Genesis, we'll talk about him. And to Perez was born Hezron, and to, born, to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Amminadab, and to Amminadab was born Nashon, to Nashon, Salmon, and to Salmon, Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, 
and to Oed was born Jesse, and to Jesse was born David. Now, a lot of these are names we don't, we're not familiar with. We don't know who Ram is or Imadab is, and we kind of just gloss over that. And so we'll probably take a few more minutes to discuss those names. But you, in both, in two cases, and you have the, the, uh, the mentioning of David in verse, end of verse 17 and the end of verse 22. So that highlights or tells you something that this is going somewhere, this is going a particular direction, and we need to pay attention. It's repeated twice within a few, within a few verses, this name David and where he comes from. The second ver, uh, version is with a little more detail, and it picks up with the name of Perez. And we gotta wonder why Perez, of all people. Yeah, it's in, in, these, in these names, what we see is a generational representation. Right. And we see a historical uh, representation. And I'm not sure that people actually are cognizant of the period of time that's covered here. With the names, which, by the way, last week we argued that this was an open um, uh, uh, genealogy rather than a closed one, which suggests that there are names that are missing from this genealogy. That's, and that's okay. The, the, the biblical writer can do that. When he's giving history, he doesn't, he's not, he doesn't have to give every single detail. He's giving the highlights or certain names to make a certain point or to, to bring up a certain um, truth that comes from that. Well, you raise a hermeneutic issue, um, um, and that biblical interpretive issue is namely this. Why do we have certain content in the Bible versus other content that is not in the Bible? Right. And why is certain content structured in the way that it's structured? The Bible's view of history is pointed. Right. It seeks to see and interpret history from a theological perspective. So it's not seeking to give you the historicity of China or Russia or other nations, as it were, and it's not seeking to give you every single detail of an individual's life as much as it is seeking to give you a theological perspective. And, and, and lest we fool ourselves to think that every history book is um, unbiased, uh, right. That does not happen. Every history book is written from some bent or some bias that the writer is trying to persuade of. You know, all but, literature. All literature. So it happens, you know, and there's, there's, there's a, a, obviously the Bible is written from a theological perspective, but every history book you read has a particular bent and slant and bias. And we don't like to say that word. We want to say it's all, you know, truth and all like, but honestly, it's, it's, with a certain bias. But this, with the open genealogy, it's for a theological purpose. By the way, you touched on something, John, that I think is important to mention. In order for something to be true does not necessitate that it be exhaustive. Right. In other words, you can give something that is true. Um, um, you oft text me when we are um, um, coming to the studio, and right. you'll say, are you there yet? Right. And I will either answer yes, or I'm near, or I'm on my way. We'll do that with each other. Right. Now, what we do not do is give a detailed account of, I am on this street, I am now turning left, I am waiting here. That doesn't mean that my statement that I'm either here or not here is fallacious. Right. It simply is to the point, I have either arrived or not arrived, and it is true. And that's important because when we are looking at the biblical data, the biblical data is seeking to give us that truth that is essential for, number one, giving us the point of the narrator, 
Number two, giving us a soteriological or a salvific perspective, giving us also a doxological perspective. Namely, what does this have to say about the glory of God and how does this articulate the character of God? So we need to know that we have not been lied to because we don't have necessarily a closed genealogy, but we must remember the purpose of the genealogy. Again, it is for mnemonic purposes, namely so that the audience could memorize it. It is for a pedigree. What is the quality of this person's background? Right. It is also for a toledoth, the generation. From whence does this individual come? Right. And so it has several purposes, and we mustn't find ourselves offended because God does not see it necessary to tell us all things, as though arrogantly we could, in fact, handle all and, things and you know that what, God you know would what, have to say. You know, what's interesting is that in, in this case where we're looking about David, because obviously this is written after Ruth existed. This is written obviously probably during the time of David uh, uh, to sort of give uh, credence to his kingship and where he came from and all that. It only goes, the, the names are only, what, 10 or 11 names, whereas you have the genealogy in, in Matthew and Luke, and both those uh, writers bring the, uh, Jesus' genealogy back even further. In other words, that's just to say, how do we know this person is supposed to fill this seat? How do we know this Jesus is supposed to be the king? Is he qualified? Is he qualified? And the gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, go way beyond what you would think. They don't just go back to David. You know, they go back even further back to well, one well of, Luke goes Luke back, goes to, back Adam. to Adam. Yeah. So the point is, there's this this almost overkill here. This is sufficient to say this is where David came from. Now, in one sense, David himself doesn't come from royalty. No. You see the kind of people that he comes from. He come, you know, what what's, what what's David's what makes David so special that he should be king? He's an earthy man. He's an earthy man. His heritage, he comes. He has a a, a Moabite widow. He has a destitute, you know, great 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 grandmother Naomi, uh, who is also widowed, and he's got a cool you know Boaz who's who's a selfless guy, but he's also older in age. He's you know. You don't have you don't have this. Oh, you come from the the right. These are ordinary people. These are ordinary, destitute, poor from Bethlehem kind of people that God uses to bring up a David. And so, in one sense, it tells you something about God and His choice. It, it tells you, and that's that's where the theology of a book is so important. Yeah, because. <laughs> The point of the book is to establish this genealogy, but when you look at the genealogy, what you will not find is what you will find, let's say, in a British monarchy. You will not find King Richard III or something of that nature. What you will find is um, uh, not an extraordinary beginning, but humble beginnings. Right. Because the credulity in this narrative is not to spring back to this awesome qualitative pedigree of the man, but it's to spring back to the sovereign providential hand of an extraordinary God. Right. That's what makes David impressive. And that's what makes, that's the difference. It's not the greatness of the people he came from. It's the greatness of the God that brought forth these people and what did what he did. So, and, and it's, it's interesting because if you're going to, we're going to look at King David, and this is all leading to David, and the contrast between David and Saul and Saul being this tall, dark, and handsome guy that was the pe- that won the people's choice award, so to speak, you know. But he wasn't God's choice. Ultimately, you know, he was 
people's the people's choice and he comes from a different heritage and David who is not the first choice among anybody God does something great with him and he becomes again the example of what a great king would be a messiah would be like he would be like this David well what you see um, in, in this uh, genealogy is a prehistory history. Right. And now, I, I'm going to use some phraseology here that I think will be important. Um, um, you have the exile proper. And right. when we talk about the exile proper, we're referring to two exiles. We're referring to the exile um, that occurs um, uh, with the Assyrian exile right. for the northern, northern kingdom, right. uh, Israel, the ten tribes. And then we're, we're referring to the exile 586 or 87 BCE under Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar right. for Judah, the two tribes. Right. But this is a paleo exile that is encompassed within the framework of this particular genealogy because Ferez is pre-exile. Per, my, my Bible says Perez. <laughs> Maybe there's a typo in your Bible because it says Perez in mine. <laughs> right. <laughs> he is pre-exilic to the um, the. The, the uh, Egyptian right. experience, right? Right. So, so he reflects the experience of of um, the family before they went into the land of Egypt, and of course, then Hezron Teram represents the death of individuals within a foreign land, right. and then the return from exile would be covered or from Egypt, right? right. Would be covered in Aminadab's generation right. and then the fulfillment of the hope for the clan is fulfilled in the Davidic generation. So this 800 years encompasses a great deal of historicity for the nation. So you almost you you have a parallel structure between of of Israel's history you're saying of of them being um, ousted from from a land Obviously, in, in the name Sir Perez and the Exodus from, from Egypt, or they're in Egypt, they're out of Egypt, they're into the land, but then it goes on to the to the um, to the, uh, the further um, the parallel with the uh, Israel uh, exile from from the land under the Babylonian captivity. So you Absolutely. have this almost not a repetition of history, but sort of like a synopsis of their history. Well, uh, can we use this word? A precursor. A precursor, yeah. Yes, because okay. you often see that, right? Uh, you'll often see that, like, for instance, um, again, a, an interpretive uh, a point or a hermeneutic point here. Um, what you will see is, like, for instance, and you pointed this out in one of your uh, sermons, namely that the history in um, Genesis 14 with Avram or right. Abram. Right facing the giants um, in that particular arena and facing... Um, Isn't that a movie? Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> that history is going to be mirrored in Israel's history when they come to the border uh, and they are looking at the uh, uh, the uh, giants in the land. Right. And so the argument of the narrator is what Abraham was able to do by faith, our right. forefather, right. we too can do by faith. But in in these names, you just went over the history of, of obviously in Egypt, out of Egypt, into the land, out of the land, right? The whole, you have that there's a constant in all this is, is God's ability to keep his people his people because they're in the land of, okay, they're in, in, they're in whether they're in Egypt or they're, whether they're in Israel and then they're, they're, they're kicked out, they're, they're, that's you know they're maintained so to speak 
they're 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 consistently still got that God is still even even in the most remotest place the a place that they um, aren't supposed to be let's say they're they're in, in Babylon God's still with them that God is able to bring them back no matter where they go that's there's a constant of God sort of keeping his word keeping his promise of saying you're my people um, I'm still your God and I'm not stuck here to just reside in in, in Israel proper um, I, if you're in Egypt, I will raise up a Moses for you, and you're still my people. You know, it's, there's this this constancy that that somehow it holds all of it together, and even um, um, just declares on his his faithfulness to his covenant to Abraham, and and so that's sort of I see that in in this genealogy. This is this this thread that they're still a people, despite what they've went went through. Uh, even with the dispersion of, of the ten tribes by the Assyrians, uh, who some say is, are lost, but God knows who the, those people are. He knows where they went. Uh, they're not lost to him. Um, they are still, um, um, he's still faithful to them. He's still faithful to, to the tribes of Judah as well, no matter where they're, where they're at and no matter if they've been dispersed throughout the whole world, you know. And so there's this, this theme of God still keeping them his people. And, and that theme that you just touched on, John, of the covenantal fidelity of God. Yes. Um, and I want to make sure that I introduce the word covenantal before even the faithfulness of God, because it's intertwined right. for the nation, right. and it's intertwined for the people of God, period. Right. Um, but when you open the book of Genesis, you open in this garden with life. The book ends in a coffin, and and so it opens with life. It ends in death, namely Joseph's coffin, right? Uh, when you pick up the book of Exodus, what you have is you have uh, 70 people, according to the Masoretic text, 75, according to the Septuagintal text, right? right. That's picked up in the narration of, of Stephen in his sermon in Acts chapter number seven. Right. But when you're looking at this, what you see is this question when you open up the book of Exodus, like, um, what happened to those people? Right. Uh, can God keep his promises? And that's right. one of the reasons why you have the name Vishemot. And yes. these are, are the, the names. names. Because yes. what you see is God has not lost the family. And he's going to take the family and tuck them away in the land of Goshen for 430 years until this family becomes a swelling nation. How do they become a swelling nation? By the miraculous hand of God to multiply in Exodus chapter number one and two under, uh, under diverse circumstances and right. arduous circumstances in very much the way that he miraculously multiplies humanity in Genesis chapter number one and two. Right. So you're going to see that picked up. Well, you know, and and he says this to Israel during their time away, when they're about to go back into the, into the land after Exodus happens. Uh, he says in Deuteronomy, uh, the reason why they're even a people, he says in Deuteronomy 7, he says, uh, for, you, for you are a, a holy people. This is Deuteronomy 7 verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Here's, here's a key, verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other peoples, for you were the fewest. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. See, this promise that God made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob afterwards, he is still keeping He's saying, you're my people, 
And I'm doing this not because you're mighty and great and there's anything special in of it to yourself, but I am going to keep my, my promise, my covenant that I made to your forefathers back then. That tells you something because, because, because God's promise and the benefits of his promise are often, we receive the benefits of a promise that he made to somebody before us. Right. You know, the, the, we receive the benefits of a promise that is, that's, that, that as Christians we are in, in Christ— and we get to receive the benefits that, that Christ actually earned for us. By the way, John, this is, in my opinion, one of my concerns with replacement theology because the idea is, well, how is God covenantally fidelitous? Well, he and what you mean his, by replacement f- f- theology I mean is that the idea the that the, the modern church— right. By modernity, I'm referring to the church first century since the birth of the church, the church right? Yes, the church that, itself. That the church um, has replaced the nation of Israel uh, because they failed in the covenant. Right. Thus, God has replaced them with a new people, which, by the way, does not seem, in my opinion, to bear true in Scripture. Romans 9 through 11, right. Ephesians 3. Um, just it, Scripture is replete with God's choice of the nation, as it were. Um, with that said, then, um, some would purport that he has kept his covenant by, by replacing and making a new Israel a new nation. Right. But this begs questions about the theological string that we see running throughout right. uh, the First Testament. What's more, this begs the question of God um, not being challenged by Israel's sin because they consistently sinned against God from day one, from right. their inception in their forefather, Avraham. Right. And so with that said, what we see is we see this faithfulness to the covenant, thus the covenant people that God keeps that goes throughout the framework of Scripture, which according to Ephesians 3, we have joined in, right. not replaced, right. Romans 9 through 11, right. but been, been graced to be grafted into that. Right. So it's a privilege to be in this position. And that's, it's as if to say God is able to be faithful to keep his people his people up into a certain point, have we now exhausted? Have we now find found the the one thing where God says, "Okay, I give up." I mean, certainly this would have happened a long, long, long time ago, and the all of the Old Testament wouldn't have been, or the first covenant, or the first testament, as we like to say as well. That wouldn't have happened. So, right. and we obviously we don't have time to get into all the th- uh, discussion about Paul saying that we're grafted into to Israel. But it's interesting that in the book of Ruth, though. And, and you can read some commentators that in the book of Ruth, there is almost a, a, a picture or a foreshadowing of the church and of, of the church, say, uh, being pictured by Ruth, this, this, this outsider, outside of the, out of, uh, she's from Moab, she's not from Israel, being brought into the family. But then you have this, this uh, uh, Naomi who, picture, who may be a picture of, of Israel, who is going through some bitterness, some bitter trials, some bitter experiences, that somehow this Ruth is able to help her regain her faith, so to speak. Because you know, at the end of the story, Naomi is is refreshed. She's not this bitter woman. She's not this this um, she's she has she's gone through a lot. And this Naomi and Ruth as being sort of foreshadowing of the church and Israel and, and the Jewish nation and Jewish um, um, people 
may be a foreshadowing of what may happen as well, or has which, happened. Which, as a character that depicts theology, um, there is a wonderful summation in Galatians 3, verse 8, wherein the Apostle Paul says, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. In other words, what is being argued by the Apostle Paul, if I may more pointedly apply it to the book of Ruth, is Ruth in chapter number one is not incidental, coincidental, haphazard, nor is she, oh my goodness, God is surprised by the sin of the people in Judges, and so shall we pick someone out of somewhere. No. What we see is God's deliberate, intentional display of his gentilic uh, inclusion. I want to be careful with that word inclusion because I do not mean by that inclusion theology, but I mean this this anticipation, Ephesians 3, wherein he's going to bring Jew and Gentile and form one new man in Christ Jesus. So what you're seeing very early is this intentional spark of the activity of God to do something that we're going to see in a fuller picture in New Testament theology, but certainly we're seeing points of it, seeds of it now, in the first this Testament. Is, this can get very practical here because here's what you have. You have God being the the God who cares for all nations. All nations, as as we see in Jonah. He's he's not a God who's just saying, okay, I'm just, I'm just over Israel, that's all I want. As he says to Abraham, you're going to be a light to all nations, right? Um, you have you have hints of that even in the Exodus, where it's it talks about um, a, a mixed multitude came out of Egypt. Perhaps some Egyptians came with them uh, that were not, maybe not mentioned by name, but you sort of get the hints of that. You have obviously here in in Ruth, Ruth herself being grafted in, sort of welcomed into the family. She goes from being Ruth the Moabitess to Ruth the wife. And now she's part of the, the family history. Um, and, and the scripture indicating that, that, that all peoples of all races will worship God. That tells you something, though. Because sometimes there's, a, there's even today, where people get on, they get on this, this bent of, well, well, my people are special because, you know, well, we're, we're the, you know, okay. I don't know what color Jesus was, but it doesn't matter because he loves all people. I don't, I don't know what color eyes his, he had. You know, what if, he, what if he had blue eyes? Then those of us who have blue eyes, like, hey, hey, we're we're more like Jesus than you are. You know, we don't know that, and that doesn't matter. And thank God he doesn't have a photograph because God is is not wanting to say, hey, well, for those of you who ha- who are you know blue eyed, you know, dark hair, blue eyed. You're more like Jesus than someone who's got dark hair, brown eyes, or you know what I'm saying? Yes. And so this idea that that Jesus, even in in, in his own his own ministry, where he where he purposely goes to people that aren't Gentile, like obviously the woman at the well in Samaria, uh, is one prime example. Where yes, he goes to the synagogues, but then and he you know he understands he's sent for the to the lost tribes of or the lost sheep of Israel. But he doesn't. He the the the, the Syrophoenician woman who 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 begs for the. He says she says, you know, I, I a, a dog is able to eat the crumbs off the master's table, and he blesses her for that and acknowledges her faith. You see that 
in his ministry. You see that even in his own genealogy where there's these, where the, the, the people that are mentioned, you have Rahab and you have Ruth, you have, you know, a, a Bathsheba. I mean, you have these people that aren't, you know, part of the Israelite tribes per se. And so you have God who is, who cares for all nations and all peoples. And that, that opens the door for, for this, you know, this is what we call the church, you know. In, in the church, we don't just have, we're not all the same. We have people from all backgrounds, and yet we have this connection in Christ that brings us together. Within the framework of Scripture, John, there is a, a, a may I say, an ethnic and national inclusio, right? In this way, um, Abraham is the father of the nations, but in being the father of, or, or I should say, he is the father of the Israeli nation, but he himself was not Jewish. Right. Technically, he was not. He was not, but he's the father of the nation. In other words, he made a people, says Isaiah, out of a, in, out of a people who were not a people. Right. So we must remember that. Uh, what's more, uh, according to Genesis 11, just before Abraham, right. his goal was that the nations would spread throughout the face of the world. Um, um, this was intended from the beginning. Uh, what's more, if we continue, what we see in the book of Revelation is John attests to yes. every nation, every yep. tribe, every tongue within the framework of heaven. What this means is God has redeemed from all nations some for himself. Right. So does God delight in the ethnicities? Why, certainly of he course. does. He delights in the nationalities. But his, but his delight in the nationalities does not lift their nationality to a point of supremacy. Right. There is a theology that supersedes our ethnicity and our pigmentation. And so for us to herald or highlight within the framework of a gathering a, a ethnicity or nationality or language over and above our unity in Christ right. is to work against the grain of the Bible. Right. It's to work against the grain of the intention of the blood of Jesus and its efficacy because it does not seek to honor um, Christ after the flesh, right. but it seeks to honor Christ after the, after the work that he has produced, namely in the people of God, right. which goes beyond black lives, Anglo-European right. um, uh, lives or, or certain pigments. And I, and I think we do not only <clears throat> miss it when we do that, but we are dangerously arrogant and we are dangerously exclusive. We are doing something that limits the parameters, the height, the depth, the width of the intention of the gospel itself. I mean, it gives God glory that you and I, I, I can be blessed by somebody who does not have my my racial background that has to have that's a different uh, heritage than I am than different way of looking things I can be blessed and ministered to by people that are, that are different than me and that I don't have to say I can only be blessed by people who are just like me well John here here's the truth listen I can be blessed by salt as an ingredient but, but salt is better with black pepper I can be blessed by Mrs. Dash Spice, yeah. but Mrs. Dash Spice is bettered by salt and pepper. Now, the point of the salt and the pepper and the Mrs. Dash is not to be an end in and of itself, because I do not sit at the table with my spoon uh, dug into the spices. The goal is that they would color chicken, right? right? The point is the chicken. In other words, I'm glad that we are 
as ingredients attached to Christ. But your ingredient, sir or ma'am, your height, your weight, your ethnicity, your pigmentation is not the point. We sit at the table to consume Christ and not your ethnic um, um, uh, contribution. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, well, this is, <laughs> I, I suppose, you know, we're, we, we were thinking, obviously we're reflecting on, on both the genealogy and, and the theology of, of what, we, what we've learned in, in the book of Ruth and I, I, as 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 we're you know sort of continuing the conversation, which we probably won't finish today, probably next week we'll have to address as well. But one of the things that that is encouraging about Ruth, not only with with God's use of an outsider, so to speak, and including that person, is how when I read Ruth and and our discussions of Ruth, it's almost more true to life. Then you know, typically when you read the Bible, you think you think uh, God, you know, God spoke to this person and God spoke to that person, which He did, you know, and you get this impression that you know there's Peter and there's Paul and they're hearing from God every Tuesday morning and God's you know using these you know this regular things going on in their lives. Well, in Ruth, you get sort of God in the background type of depiction. You get this people living their lives and sort of just handling things how they by faith as much as they can not understanding what God is doing it's sort of like this picture of God behind the scenes the hiddenness of God that is throughout and in this there's a couple of places where it says God did something in the beginning God visited his people by giving them bread we talked about that earlier yes. or God giving conception to Ruth uh, at the end of the book but in between all that and all the years that Naomi went through of of grief and hardship and everything else that that we can imagine, it's not like she goes around thinking, "Well, God is doing this, that, and the other." She is not certain. And from from a reader and as a person, I can relate to that because I go through times where I don't know what God is doing, where God is sort of He's hidden. So the wonderment, the wondering is. Lord, what are you up to? Have you forgotten about me? And I think the wrestling of that question, um, and how, and and the fact that God is is hidden yet He's active at the same time. He's hidden to our eyes, but yet somehow the narrator points out, oh, He's very much active, and He's not active in ways that you think He's going to, you know, speak from the heavens and you know appear, you know, at your bedside and tell you to do something which sometimes I wish he would do it because <laughs> I would think it would be more clear. But he often is working in, 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 in through the circumstances and people in your lives that takes you a while to realize, oh, that was God telling me to do this. You raise an issue. Let me review what you've just said in theological speak. There are several things to be said about God, but two things that must be said about God in this conversation is a discussion concerning his transcendence and his eminence. Okay? Now, that fanciful theological language simply means this. His transcendence is not just that God is higher. We're not talking about spatiality, <clears throat> the difference between one foot to 12 foot. Right. We're not talking about spatiality because to even speak of God spatially is problematic, right? right? God is spirit, according to John 4. It, so when we speak of God, we must speak of his transcendence, namely his altogether otherness. Right. And when we're speaking of his otherness, here's, here's a, a summative way to think of that, right? That God is creator, 
everything else is creation and creature. So God stands in a class all by himself. But if he stands so far other, then we cannot identify him. Right. So how does God, who is altogether other, or might I use this term, alien right. in an appropriate theological framework, how does God communicate or interact right. with those who are creation how, and creaturely? How does his otherness intersect with today? With, with our life, creatureliness with our creature, yeah. and with the creation. He does so through his eminence a fanciful theological term that would argue for the nearness or the presence of God within a temporal framework, right. within a spatial or matter world or, or framework, as it were. And, and in this way, what we see is that in the book of Ruth, God, who is altogether other and who has a plan, a decree that he's working on, that is immutable, that is unchangeable, acts near and dear to mankind in a vicissitude of ways, right? In, right. in diverse manners. But when he does that, it is not, in your words, as overt, as obvious, as clear as we would like. One particular author said, it, it is like the invisible providential God acting with his invisible hands in the gloves of circumstance in a manner that we cannot always detect him in foresight. But as we look back on the circumstances, we clearly see, ah, therein was the hand of God. You know, it's interesting that, that the psalmist, and I'm thinking of David especially because he wrote a lot of the psalms, he struggles with this a lot of times. You know, you have the, the psalms of lamentations, the psalms of the questions that come up. You know, the why, are you, he says in Psalm 10, why do you stand off so far, Lord? Why are you so far away? Why do you hide yourself from me in times of trouble? Um, this is... David, or this is the psalmist speaking, reflecting his perception and his feeling that it feels like, God, why are you? Why do you feel so far away? Or uh, in Psalm forty-four, he says, Why do you hide your face um, uh, f- and forget us in in in, in, um, uh, in your affliction? Or or how long? How long, Lord, will 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 this situation happen? You know, you can read the Psalms and have those questions. Why? How long? Where are you, God? And these reflect the reflection of um, even Naomi in the story of Ruth. God has has dealt bitterly with me. You know, this is it. Feels like God's God's far away. Those are real and genuine feelings. And and what's amazing about that is <laughs> we can ask those questions and say, Look, Lord, I'm not sensing you at all. I don't know where you're at. And understand that theologically and hopefully by faith, we can trust God is near. Even though I don't feel him near, he's near. But yeah, I still have these feelings of, God, you feel so far away. So what's, what's going on? Well, in, in moments like this, what we have to admit is that sensationally or in the senses, right, there will be times of that nature. Our listeners won't like to hear this, John, but this is an absolute truth statement that the silence of God in the development of the believer is just as critical as the voice of God in the development of the believer's that, life. I think that's, I, I think that's a, a, such a profound point because we, off, we want God, we want to hear God all the time. And, and, but God has decided that for some reason his silence grows us, challenges our faith, deepens our, our trust. 
where we say, God, I don't hear you, but yet the last time I heard you, you said this, or you have spoken in the past, and I have to decide, what am I, am I gonna believe my feelings? Am I gonna believe the winds and the waves that are around me, or when I believe you saying, trust me? That's, and it seems like that's, it, go, it goes back to that, that command that God says, trust me, trust me. And that's the challenge because we are so wanting quick fixes, quick answers, quick, you know, um, remedies to things. And when God is silent, it's as if he's saying, trust me, oh, trust me some more. No, I have this, I have this worked out, you know. Um, I, I think of what he said to, to Job when Job challenged him at the end of the book of Job and, and basically, you know, basically almost accused God of, you know, what are you doing here? And and God says, well, where were you? <laughs> yeah. I know what I'm doing, he's saying. It, it's, you know what's interesting in the book of Job? It's not that God gives Job an answer, but God gives Job a series of questions, and right. the series of questions are the answer. Right. In other words, I am transcendent. Right. You are human. Stay on your level. Right. And recognize that I am God. I, I also think this is, is important because when I say something like... Um, like uh, God uh, speaks to us necessarily developmentally in his silence, right? Because his silence is screaming to us and it develops muscles that could not be developed otherwise. Listen, only the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit know the depths of God, right? That's it. So for you to know that exhaustively would put you on a scale of divinity. Secondarily, God will for those individuals saying, well, Lord, I want to know your plan. I want to know your plan. That's a good prayer. But know that that is not a sufficient prayer altogether no. for this reason. God will never work with you in a way that undermines the criteria or the necessity of faith. In other words, God can give you many things, but he will never give you anything that will not strictly demand or necessitate dependence upon him every step of the way. That's a good point because we often want, we want the course plotted out for us so that we know what's going to happen so that we can have some control over, we can say, God, no, I don't approve of that. I veto that. I don't want to go through that, you know. But what you're saying is is that God will make it such that we are we have to live by faith. Have to. We have to. And we we often think well if i don't know the plan of god that somehow god's plan won't be done won't be done no god is able to do his plan in your life um, no matter which way you go if you go left he's able to direct you go, go right if he, if you're supposed to go right in other words it's not the onus is not on us to sort of figure out how to get from a to b to, to all the way to z god if he's our god is able to direct us to our final destination no matter what and somehow we think that the sh we, want, we want the shortcut to get the Z. And all along the way, God's directing us in ways we don't realize. And we, we tend to think that sometimes uh, it's dependent on us to, to really, okay, here's God's plan for my life. Here's what God wants me to do. Well, that means I have to do this, that, and the other. Listen, God's directing you and he wants to direct you um, in ways that are far beyond your A to B to Z plat, uh, goal and plat. He, he might have you laid out on a path that you've never considered before, still bringing you to the right destination and still along the way doing the work that he wants to do in your life. Who would have thought that at the beginning of the story of Ruth, this Naomi who's bitter, who's, been, who's lost her husband, who's, who's destitute, 
would at the end of the story, God would so change her heart that she is now, she's a changed woman. And she has, she has a person in her life, in Ruth, that she tried to send away at first, not knowing what God would use a Ruth in her life to change her life, Naomi's life, for the better. Um, that's significant there. This is the phenomenon of the Greek term in Romans 8, proharizo, to mark out beforehand the horizon. Only God knows that. And, and when you're looking at this within the framework of, of a genealogy, it's interesting because we admit that, that David is significant without exception. He and Moses are the most important figures in the First Testament um, leading to John, which is going to be that transitory figure. But it's interesting when you consider how God is moving things together with what we've been talking about and its connectivity with David. For instance, David preoccupies the authors of 1-2 Samuel, 1-2 Kings, and 1-2 Chronicles. In those, uh, in those pieces of literature, they are comprised of 102 chapters. But did you realize, percentile-wise, 42 of those 102 chapters are preoccupied with David, which would argue this, 41% of that literary space is given over to a Davidic focus. It's it's interesting because that's 9% of Israel's historic space. In other words, what you see of the book of Ruth is a bridge, a bridge to not only the anticipated king, but the promised king, the quintessential king, the supreme first testament king. It's interesting because he represents a pinnacle of history, a pinnacle that comes from a long sovereign formation and work on behalf of the hidden hand of God in time. So like for instance, this genealogy, whilst representing 800 years of history, what does it represent? It represents all of these years of God's work to get to one man. So you might say that if we were to look on a linear right. scale at things like a funnel, you might see the width opening at Genesis, Genesis and yeah. the point coming to a David. In other words, God is slow cooking something here. And in God slow cooking something, he's doing it, dare I say, brilliantly, sovereignly, providentially, hidden to the eyes and to the manipulation of man so that when we see a David produced, no human will be able to take credit, but a lot of humans, both upstanding and scandalous, will have been involved and right. you'll not be able to have said, you saw that coming. Right. That, and that, that speaks again to the, the glory of God and speaks to him directing everything and um, everything approaching to David, but then from David, there is a, a laser beam that goes directly to Jesus Christ. Directly. Directly to him. And no one would have seen that coming. And it starts off with this huge promise to Abraham. Um, what you And obviously, we're, we're going to run out of time here in the, in the next few moments um, in just this discussion on, on the theology of God and God being behind the scenes and God being the one who's directing it all in his providence, in his sovereignty, uh, in ways that... Um, you, you look back and say, wow, it took a long time, God, or it took a lot of people, but the end result, though, 
is is even more glorious. You know, it's like the work that he does in our life. We want that work to be done today. We want God to be done like like a drive-through, right? I want I want this done in my life right now. God, would you please help me overcome this issue right now? Well, God may set you free from that instantaneously, or he might work on your character through a long time or through a, a hard series of events to bring uh, a, a richness and a, and, a, and a change that is not artificial, but has some some depth to it, and developing you to be more like his son, that takes a significant amount of time. Might I say this? I, I want to challenge our hearers because there's something essential that you don't want to lose sight of. We're talking about a beautiful story, but that beautiful story comes out of the hidden wisdom of God. May I say to you, there is this human fallen um, uh, uh, tendency, proclivity, propensity, bent, if you will, a leaning that wants to know everything um, and, and, and believes that we should um, uh, uh, be with God in the driver's seat and be able to, by GPS, say, turn left, turn right, God. May I say you want a God bigger than that? Yeah. You want a God bigger than your intellectual capacity. You, you want your theology to be a box and a box and a box and a box. You want there to be within your finite understanding an infinite God who will not fit to a degree. You want him to be true. You want him to be knowable. But you don't want him to be exhausted uh, or, or exhaustive uh, in a way where you can just handle him, right? You want him to be um, uh, uh, beyond those, those uh, uh, parameters, beyond that fence. And, and what you see in the book of Ruth is that. In other words, you see this story, but God was working long before. You see this story, but God has plans that are far beyond that, um, that are going to go into generations. And then you'll look at David and you'll say, I think I see God finally. No, you don't. And you never want to. You want to see God as not seeing him, hear him as not hearing him, behold him as not beholding him. In other words, you always want to be in that relationship with God wherein he humbles you, he shocks you, he surprises you. You stand in awe and reverence of him because he is the God who you see yet not seen. He is the God who reveals himself as I will be who I will be, how I will be, as I will be. Thank you again for listening to Living Truth with John Corr and C.L. Mitchell. If you would like to hear this podcast again or previous episodes, you may do so at passionforhisword.com. That's passionforhisword.com. You may also like us on Facebook at Living Truth Radio Broadcast. That's Living Truth Radio Broadcast. Again, our prayer for you is that God would sanctify you in truth, for His Word is truth.